What do the Hamden County Sheriff's Office, local area police departments, and local councils on aging all have in common? They are the three partnerships that form the Hamden County Triad Program, created by Sheriff Nick Kochi to provide local seniors in Hamden County safe, healthy, and free services. This winter, the Sheriff's Department is hosting a Sand for Seniors program to offer free buckets of sand to senior citizens as a preventative measure for use on sidewalks, driveways, and walkways. For other triad services available, call 413-858-0060. The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Leave the game better than you found it. And when it comes time for you to leave, leave a legend. Kobe Bryant. Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and each week we're here to share the stigmas and narratives from those who've been impacted by the criminal justice system, the reality of life behind the wall, the people and organizations committed to bringing positive change, and the inspiring stories of those who are hustling to prove that failure isn't final. This is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. Today, we're really honored to have in studio attorneys David Hoos and Ryan Schiff, both of whom specialize in criminal defense and civil rights. So, David and Ryan, welcome to this week's The Hustler Files. Thanks for having us, Lisa. Yeah, thank you very much. And the first voice was David, and the second voice was Ryan. We're here to have some very serious conversation today, and uh, the two subjects that Ryan and David are here to chat with us about are very important subjects. The first being that Massachusetts has banned life without parole for adults 21 and under in a landmark decision that actually Ryan uh, helped litigate. And then David is a defense attorney, has worked with many people over the years who are justice involved. And we're going to chat with him about the recent Alabama execution because we think that that's a conversation that should not be forgotten. So Ryan, let's start with you. Give us a little bit of background on yourself and then let's dive into this new law that you help litigate. Sure, thanks. So I've been practicing law for a little bit over 20 years now. Started off at a law firm in Boston, then I became for, I don't know, seven years, something like that. And then I became a public defender and worked as a public defender for the next eight years and then moved into private practice here in Northampton. And as of the beginning of the year, I joined David at Strehorn Ryan and Hoos, um, where I'm really happy to be working with great lawyers. And this particular case, the Mattis case, I got involved in this case in the midst of the pandemic in the summer of 2020, but it's an issue, the constitutionality of life without parole for late adolescents or emerging adults is an issue that I've been working on for about six years, directly litigating, and then interested in and working on more indirectly for longer than that. So I was reading numerous articles I guess one of my first questions is that Massachusetts was one of only 10 states to sentence emerging adults age 18 through 20 convicted of first-degree murder to life without parole. And now Massachusetts is the first state to ban it. 
what was happening in the other 40 states? So the big thing there is is mandatory life without parole. So Massachusetts relies, compared to other states, very heavily on life without parole as a punishment. For anybody in Massachusetts convicted of first-degree murder, now other than people under the age of 21, but everybody else, there's one sentence that's available, and that's life without parole. doesn't matter what the mitigating circumstances are, what the person's background is, anything. If they're convicted of that crime, they automatically get life without parole. So while our state doesn't incarcerate as many people per capita as most other states, really almost any other state, we rely more heavily on life without parole than any other state other than the state of Louisiana. So that as a proportion of our incarcerated people, more people are serving life without parole than any other state than any state other than Louisiana. How many incarcerated individuals are affected by this decision? So it's a little bit over 200, which is about 20% of the people who are prior to the decision were serving life without parole. Um, So it's about 1,000 people in Massachusetts serving life without parole, people who are condemned to die in prison without any chance of ever showing that they're reformed. And now that's been reduced by a little bit over 200. So... What made you take on this litigation? Was it just something that struck a chord in you that you said this mm-hmm. years of, of being in the criminal justice space that you needed to, to fight for these 200? That's a good question. So some of that is definitely what it is, but also a shift in what my emphasis has been over the years to really focusing on representing adolescents. And by adolescents, I just don't, I don't, just mean people under the age of 18, but also this group of people who are 18, 19, 20, and even a little bit older. So when I was a public defender, I initially worked in the special litigation unit, which was the part of the public defender agency that did impact litigation. Um, And I got to work on a whole different variety of different kinds of things. But the big thing that it had in common was that we were doing cases that could potentially impact a large number of people. But we were looking for cases to get up into the state Supreme Court, the Supreme Judicial Court, where we could get changes in the law that would help a bunch of people. And then after doing that for, I don't know, about six years or something, I became the director of juvenile appeals at the State Public Defender Agency. And at that point, these kind of two ways of looking at things came together, of thinking about the role that adolescents have in the criminal legal system and how they're treated and particularly people who get these extreme sentences. And then also thinking about it from this more systemic perspective that I had developed while working in special litigation is how can we not just change things one case at a time, but how can we put together cases that can bring this large-scale change that impacts a whole bunch of people? And this, in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court said that mandatory life without parole was unconstitutional under the U.S. Constitution, and that's a case called Miller versus Alabama. And then a year later in 2013, our state Supreme Court was deciding, should that apply under our state constitution as well? And should it apply retroactively to people who were already serving life without parole? And our state Supreme Court went a step further and said, under our state constitution, our version of the Eighth Amendment that prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, Article 26, the court said, not only is mandatory life without parole unconstitutional, but all life without parole effectively doing away with life without parole for people under the age of 18 in Massachusetts. 
So then in that 10 years between 2000, this was the end of 2013, and then January 2024 when our case was decided, there were huge advances in the science that showed that all the characteristics that were important to the SJC in that case in 2013 are also true of people who are 18, 19, and 20. And we were able to marshal that science and get the best experts we could possibly find in a variety of different relevant scientific fields and be able to show that there was really no difference between those juveniles whose sentences were found to be unconstitutional in 2013 and then these 18, 19, 20-year-olds. It's fascinating. And we talk a lot on the show about trauma and how it affects, you know, especially young men and their brain development and systemically where they grow up and how they're raised. And there's so many factors involved. David, I'm going to switch over to you for a second. You've actually represented young clients who have been in this space, right? Oh, sure. Uh, Quite a number of them, uh, actually. Back in the 90s and early 2000s, I I was doing a lot of court-appointed homicide cases and it, it, it was quite a number of them that were under the age of 21. And as I was saying when we were talking about this earlier, when Ryan and Paul got their victory in this case, I immediately started running through my memory banks saying, okay, who did I have that was under 20 who got life without parole who's possibly going to be released? And I immediately thought of one guy who I was sure. And then I thought of another, and another guy turned out not to have been under 20. And then I was reminded of a third one who I did an appeal on. So that's just me. And they're, they're everybody's who's done a lot of criminal defense work and done homicide cases probably has a handful of people who are affected by this. So are you going to reach out to these people or see where they are in the, in the cycle? You know, what will happen, as I understand it, and Ryan may be able to speak to this uh, more accurately than me, is that the Committee for Public Counsel, our state public defender agency, one arm of that has already compiled a list of those that are eligible. Then there is uh, a separate list of lawyers who are qualified to do these sort of parole hearings. And I think that right now we're in a process of kind of matching uh, people up. And uh, I have heard from two lawyers who are in touch with two of my former clients from the 90s. Third one I have not heard anything about yet. So something I'm interested in doing, I haven't uh, agreed or been asked to take on any of these yet, but for the past 20 years, a lot of my practice has been representing people who are exposed to the federal death penalty. So it's a, it's a very similar process of, of putting together a biopsychosocial history to, in the cases I've been doing, to argue against why the death penalty is not appropriate. And it, it's very easily transferred over to why these folks should be getting a chance at release. So many questions running through my head. Back to Ryan a second. So 200 people fit into this bucket. How many years is that going to take the courts to get through them? So the cases shouldn't go before the courts for any kind of extensive, most of these cases shouldn't go before the courts for any kind of extensive court proceedings. Most of the people should just have eligibility. They'll still have life sentences, but they'll just have an opportunity to then go before the state parole board 
and to be able to show the State Parole Board that they've changed. One of the things that has really inspired my work on this is getting to know people who are serving life without parole for crimes that took place when they were this young. It's great for us to have the science that shows what it means to have an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex at the time that you're 18 and committing an offense. Very important to show that to the court and have the court understand it and present it in all of its complexity. But what's even more important is what we see in the actual lives of people who are incarcerated for their entire lives for things that happen when they're so young. And you see people transform themselves over the course of the decades of incarceration. I have clients now, one client who's almost exactly the same age as me, just turned 50. I turned 50 last year. And our lives couldn't be more different. Me getting, I got to go to law school. I got to have a family. All of these things that he hasn't been able to have. He has become, in so many ways, a more extraordinary person than me. Somebody who does so much for the people around him, who's extraordinarily well-read, thoughtful, a chess master. You know, somebody who is just an amazing person, not just for somebody in prison, but for any of the people I've ever met in my life. This is one of the most extraordinary people I've met. And now it's going to be our job as people representing this group of people to go before the parole board and show them what extraordinary people they are. And that not only should we not fear releasing them into the community, but that they have so much to give in the community. So eloquently said. And on that note, we are going to have to take a quick break. So David and Ryan, if you can hang out with us a little bit longer, we still have a lot to cover and we will be right back. Listeners, grab another cup of coffee. You're listening to this week's The Hustler Files. Hello, this is Glenn Sexton, Superintendent and Special Sheriff of the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office and Correctional Center located in Northampton, Massachusetts. If you are considering a career in the field of corrections and public safety, as well as working for an agency that prides itself on integrity, dedication, and professionalism, then please visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com. We currently have open positions in security, health services, counseling, treatment, and education. Thank you. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. I'm Lisa Riley, and if you're just joining us, we're here this week with criminal defense and civil rights attorneys David Hoos and Ryan Schiff, and we're talking about two very high-profile stories of the last month. We just um, almost wrapped up our conversation with the Life Without Parole ban in Massachusetts for those under the age of 21, and we're going to dive into the Alabama inmate execution. But to lead into that, I did have another Another question. One of the pieces of an article I read was that on X, formerly known as Twitter, there was a WGBH, which is an NPR station in Boston, article announcing the news, and it included a couple of commentaries using the words despicable and get ready for a spike in juvenile violent crimes. And that really hits a nerve because if the Supreme Judicial Court is saying, well, you know, under age 21 and that frontal lobe isn't developed, my first reaction to those words are that these youth doing these crimes, they're not doing them and thinking, oh, I'm going to get arrested and spend the rest of my life behind the wall and never see my family again or not have a life or get married or go on vacation. They're just doing it because in the moment they think it's fun. And is that kind of where this all drills down to? I, I think that's absolutely correct. I don't think there's any plausible argument that could be made that the difference between a life sentence with the possibility of parole at, say, 15 to 25 years 
is going to be a less of a deterrent for an 18-year-old than life without the possibility of parole. There is nobody in the history of the world who has ever committed a crime thinking, well, I'll commit this crime because I might be able to get out of prison when I'm you know, 50 years old. I always quote Brian Stevenson on that point as to why the death penalty was not an effective deterrent for these young kids who were gang-involved, drug-involved, and uh, shooting and, and killing people. He said, how can it be a deterrent? And all these people, they don't even think they're going to live to be 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and we've had a representative from ROCA on the show as well way back about a year ago. And that organization, as you know, is always trying to find ways to keep youth out of the gangs and off the street and find them jobs and, and because they're all usually in the 14 to 18-year-old range in, in that organization. But let's jump into the Alabama execution. I There's a half dozen articles and I was perusing them this morning and they're really hard to read because while you, know, you can sit on either side of the fence, the fact of how this person who, yes, committed a crime at age 22, so maybe they're a little over that frontal lobe development age. But some people say a lot of youth don't develop until they're 25. And that's been a a point of a lot of uh, scientific discussion as well. So David, talk to us about why would this kind of execution with nitrogen gas even happen in 2024? Well, that's a that's a very good question. I think that a couple of years ago, we thought we were getting very close to having the critical mass on the Supreme Court where the death penalty might, for once and for all, be declared unconstitutional. Uh, we got close, and I think we are now back farther away from that than before. But really, sort of the sub question uh, to what you're asking, Lisa, which is which is really a, a proper point of focus on this case, is in this case, uh, this fellow's name uh, from Alabama, whose name is escaping me right now, he had an Alabama jury unanimously recommend against the death penalty, and. Due to what is now can only be described as an anachronism, uh, the judge in Alabama at that time had the authority to override the vote of 12 of his peers, 12 of his citizens, and say, nah, I don't agree with you. He's got to die. And that's exactly what happened uh, in that Alabama case. So that is, to me, uh, the even greater travesty than using him as the human guinea pig for execution by nitrous oxide. Execution by uh, nitrous oxide is now apparently the newest flavor of the month. You know, when, when we talk about what those in the death penalty community refer to as the modern era of the death penalty. That means essentially from 1976 forward when the Supreme Court uh, decided a trio of cases from Georgia, Florida, and Texas basically approving some death penalty statutes. And uh, in those uh, years, the first person executed uh, in the quote-unquote modern era was, of course, Gary Gilmore. There's been books and movies uh, written about Gary Gilmore. Gary Gilmore was a volunteer, and because he was in Utah, he had the option of a firing squad. Actually, I don't think he had the option. Firing squad was the only method of execution in Utah. Very interesting story, very rooted in the Mormon religion, the necessity to spill blood. And we went from that to the next few uh, 
uh, executions being by uh, electrocution or by the gas chamber. The gas chamber produced some really grueling uh, results uh, and was declared unconstitutional at at some point. Then we were uh, using mostly uh, electrocution for a while. And then I think it was somewhere in the, um, you know, maybe late 80s or 90s, uh, we started shifting to lethal injection. And I can remember then President Ronald Reagan uh, saying, well, I just, I don't understand why we can't do this the way we did on the farm. You know, you just give them a shot and put them to sleep. And that was his solution to the whole thing. The point is, is that we keep looking for a sanitary, hygienic way to kill people. And, and, and one doesn't exist. You can't make it a clean and neat process. It's killing. And, um, you know, who knows what someone will come up with next. It really is gruesome to read some of these articles and what this incarcerated individual who did commit murder when he was 22, you know, he was 58 when he passed away a few weeks ago. But What I find really interesting that the media didn't cover, and it was in one of these articles, is that in November of 2022, they tried to execute him then using lethal injection, and they claimed they couldn't find a vein, and he was strapped to the table for hours while they poked and prodded him. That, to me, then goes beyond the death penalty and becomes a torturous situation where that has to be unconstitutional. That was a not unusual problem, certainly not unique to him. Uh, And that was one of the reasons uh, why states started moving away from lethal injection was uh, many of these people have been so drug involved for so long that it's hard to find a vein to administer the drugs. The other thing is uh, that the drugs uh, that were used for the lethal injection started getting harder and harder to find, many of them coming from other countries because uh, a lot of the pharmaceutical manufacturers did not want their drugs to be used for uh, killing people. So it was getting to be a problem. And when we run into a problem with killing people, that unfortunately, nobody asks, well, maybe we shouldn't be killing people. It's like we look for a neater, cleaner way to do it. Well, this definitely, from what I read, was not neater or cleaner. I guess what also surprises me is the amount of people who were with this individual from both the family who lost their parent back, you know, to him when he committed the crime and his family and people. It's like a watch party. And it, to me, that just sounds off color as well. Yeah, that's a that's a function of state law as to who gets allowed into these uh, executions, uh, and I was not sure exactly what the law is in Alabama. But part of the problem here, and it's and it's a problem, it's a problem in the criminal justice system generally, uh, and, and easy to highlight in the death penalty is that victims of these crimes, which are always there, the crimes are all horrific. Uh, it, it's hard to say one is worse uh, than the other. But the victims, the families uh, of the people that have been killed are sold on this idea that you're going to feel better if you see someone who is punished, in this case, by being killed. 
that that is going to allow you to heal. I, I think that that is the biggest of all the big lies. Killing another being is not going to heal anyone. It's not going to make you ever feel better, and it's certainly not going to bring back your loved one. Well said. We are literally out of time. I can't thank you both enough for coming in. I'm going to have you back. There's so much more we need to talk about. But I do have one final question I ask all my guests. I don't give you forewarning, but I believe we all have life assignments and it's part of our journey. They do change for many of us, but Ryan, I'll start with you. Uh, Give us your 30 second of what you think your life assignment at this point in your life is. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled that we won the Mattis case and that now 200 people now have eligibility for parole, but not a single person has gotten out of prison because of the decision. And Hopefully not for the rest of my life, but certainly for the coming years, I'm going to be really dedicating myself to actually getting people out of prison, representing people before the parole board, helping to train other people to represent people before the parole board, making the Mattis decision not just a nice decision on paper, but something that actually results in people being released from prison. Very commendable, and I have a feeling you will not give up until you can make your mark and and help those people as many as possible. Um, David, how about you? Well, I'm a little older than Ryan. And uh, while I am not quite ready to retire completely, uh, definitely heading in that direction. And one of the things that has caught my attention in terms of where the greatest injustices lie, in terms of what I can address in the years that I have, is we are currently locking up people for uh, what I call non-contact sex offenses, child pornography, and related offenses at an alarming rate, and that these, uh, these folks are largely people that deserve our pity and not to be locked in a jail cell, people that are largely socially, sexually dysfunctional, people uh, who pose no real threat uh, to anyone. So uh, I'm working very hard on behalf of a, a number of clients to, to try to change the thinking uh, about uh, who these offenders are and what is an appropriate intervention to get them to stop doing what they're doing. That also is admirable, and I'd love to follow you on that and see how things are going in the future. So David and Ryan, thank you again for being a force for good in the criminal justice system. It's So nice to meet you and have you here and listeners hang tight. We'll be right back to wrap up this week with the Hustler Files. Don't touch that dial. Join the Hamden County Sheriff's Office medical team. We offer professional medical and mental health care during and after incarceration, following a revered public health model. We're hiring for nursing and supervisory roles, offering a less hectic case than a hospital's, a state pension, benefits, and potential retirement after 20 years. Our firm but fair approach to corrections has been emulated nationwide. We're not your average law enforcement agency. Visit our website to learn more. We are back. And this week's thoughts come from Aisha, Soft Healing Growth. It takes immense courage to rise up over and over again when giving up feels like an easier choice. It takes immense patience to learn to live again after almost drowning in trauma. It takes immense power to not let anyone or anything turn you cold and bitter. And I don't think people get enough credit for that. Even through the massive pain, they are the kindest people you will ever meet and they love unconditionally. And don't assume them to be weak. They are not. 
They are living examples of what strength looks like. And if you're that someone, I see you and I'm proud of you. And that's a wrap on another week of The Hustler Files. As always, I'm extremely grateful for all our guests and advertisers for their continuing support. You can find all our shows on the WHMP.com podcast page or on any of your favorite podcast sites. Have a wonderful week ahead. And remember, don't be ashamed of your story. It may inspire someone. See you next week right here on The Hustler Files. (laughs) 